An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian trained, high ranking officer in the Secret Service. An assassin comes to town, a six part podcast. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Contagious. Book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. 12.25 p.m. Home base. Clarence, Gitch, Marcus, Dan, and Margaret sat in the computer room of Trailer A. Each of the three computer screens played a different local channel. The left screen showed a live shot of a fire burning just east of Dearborn. The news anchor said a plane had been shot down by a missile. The middle screen showed jittery shots of panicked people rushing away from the towering Renaissance Center, the broken glass top of which belched smoke from some large internal fire. Apparently, Gunmen had rushed into the center tower, killing everyone in sight, then started shooting up the place with shoulder-fired rockets. The screen on the right showed a bulky A-10 fighter sweeping in, strafing a green vehicle up on the 8-mile road overpass. Even with the poor camera work, Margaret saw the Humvee shake and shudder as bullets tore through it. This is insane, she said. This looks like footage from Iran or something. I think we stay here, Gitch said. There's people all over out there, cars whipping down the streets and smashing into each other. Ogden's men could spot us any time. No, man, Marcus said. People all over is why we need to go now. Then we're just more civvies running around looking for a place to hide our heads. We're on a railroad track that hasn't been used in decades, Gitch said. We're tucked under a fucking overpass, man. You can't even see us from the road. We just stay right here and we ride this out. Marcus shook his head. Look, that John Doe in the autopsy room. He was found out a block from here. That was fine when it was just him, but now there's infected people all over the place. These people packed together, which means their base or whatever it is has to be close. All it takes is one rocket hitting this trailer, and we're all dead. We get out there on foot, find a building to hide in. Maybe we live. You mean maybe some of us live, Gitch said. You just want to get out there because you know this urban combat bullshit, and you just want to save yourself. Motherfucker, enough, Clarence said. He spoke quietly but his voice carried command. It's my call, and we stay. Those highway interchanges they attacked are ten miles from here. That probably means most of Ogden's men are nowhere close to us. We're not equipped to take them on. They see us, we're screwed, so we stay right here, undercover. What about the cop? Gitch asked. What about him? Margaret said. Come on, Doc, Gitch said. What if he wakes up and starts screaming? He's not going to be screaming anytime soon. He's in pretty bad shape. Gitch laughed. Yeah, well, Betty Jewell was in pretty bad shape too, right? Besides, these fucking things can talk to each other mentally and shit. Not him, Margaret said. We cured him. You think we cured him, Dan said. You don't really know. We've got to kill him, Gitch said. 
He's right, Marcus said. We have to kill him. You can't, Margaret said. This isn't just about the five of us. Officer Sanchez could be the key to a cure for the new strain. I'll watch him. I agree with Gitch, Dan said. He starts talking. We're screwed. I vote we kill him. Margaret sneered at Dan. And what happened to being a doctor? He shrugged. He's going to die anyway from an overdose of latrunculin. So what's the difference? Kill him now. Gitch nodded. That's three votes. Majority rules. This isn't a democracy, Clarence said. It's a dictatorship, and I'm the dictator. Sanchez is a civilian, a cop. He caught this shit in the line of duty, and Margaret is right. He could be the key to a cure. Unless we know he's a threat, he stays where he is. Margaret will watch him. I'll stay with her. If he poses a threat, I'll kill him myself. Cool? Gitch, Marcus, and Dan all traded looks, then nodded. None of them doubted for a second that Clarence would kill Sanchez if it came to that. Margaret wondered if she'd saved her patient or only delayed his execution. Margaret and I will suit up, Clarence said. When we're done, you guys do the same. I want everyone sealed up nice and safe. Dan, you stay in here and keep an eye on the news. Holler if there's anything major we need to know about. Gitch, Marcus, you take up positions at the front and back of the trailers. Watch for trouble. You see anything fishy, call it out over the comm system. Do not engage without the rest of us, you got it? Gitch and Marcus nodded. Come on, Dr. Montoya, Clarence said. Let's get to work on your patient. 12.30 p.m. A city paralyzed. The cacophony of a dozen animated phone conversations filled the situation room. Satellite images of Detroit lit up the main screen. Other monitors showed live feeds from news cameras and tactical maps dotted with unit symbols. One screen showed two tallies, one for dead, one for wounded. The top of every screen showed a countdown, 45 minutes and 15 seconds, the time remaining before the clock struck 1.15 p.m. President John Gutierrez sat at the end of the table, his face an expressionless mask. He looked at the monitors one by one, then circled back again. Murray was sweating like a pig, damn near hyperventilating, and Gutierrez sat there looking calm, collected, like a leader. The unflappable Vanessa Colburn wasn't sweating at all. She worked the phones, quietly offering advice to Gutierrez, but only when he asked for it. As Murray's world of secrets crumbled around him, he started to wonder if maybe she wasn't the political vampire he'd made her out to be. For the first time, Murray wondered if his way was wrong, and Vanessa was right for wanting him out. General Cooper had a phone pressed to each ear. He nodded once, then put a phone on each shoulder and called out to the room. A military convoy has been spotted heading south on I-75, he said. Seven vehicles, including two troop trucks. Around 60 men. I've got a squadron of Apaches moving to a good kill point. On a highway, Gutierrez said. What kind of civilian damage will we face? Moderate, General Cooper said, but a hell of a lot less than if those two platoons get off the road and into the countryside. Do it, Gutierrez said. No hesitation. This guy might turn out to be okay after all. Murray certainly hoped so, because it was high time to pass the baton to the next generation. He didn't know how much more of this he could take. It was one thing to go Cold War or cross swords with the Iranians, but Ogden's men were tearing Detroit to pieces. 
Detroit. Eight-mile road passed over every major highway to the north of the city. At each interchange, a massive pileup blocked the roads. Hundreds of cars, some burning, along with the sprawled bodies of people who had been gunned down trying to escape on foot. Ogden's men had also hit the major arteries on the west side, the I-96 and I-94 interchange, the interchange of I-96 and I-75. Surface roads were the only way in and out of the city, and those were choked with traffic from panicked citizens trying to escape the burning buildings and the random automatic weapons fire that hit every few minutes. The citywide traffic jams had the Detroit police scattered and disorganized. When isolated police units did encounter Ogden's gunmen, the gunmen either cut them down or blew up the cop cruisers with shoulder-launched rockets. Ogden hadn't stopped with the roads. Fire poured from the top ten floors of the Renaissance Center's middle tower. A westerly wind carried the thick, heavy black smoke plume across the city in the direction of Ann Arbor. The Fisher Building and the Knobscott Building were also in flames, three of the city's tallest skyscrapers burning out of control. Firefighters were working on those blazes, as well as a half-dozen raging infernos caused by the crash of Northwest Flight 2961. Two burning wrecks blocked the runways of Detroit Metro Airport. The main air control tower was destroyed. Random gunfire. Hundreds dead. Airport security hadn't found the attackers, which meant they were still out there. Some witnesses estimated five gunmen. Others claimed 10 or even 20. The smaller Detroit City Airport? Same deal. Blocked runways, burning wrecks, tower destroyed. Totally out of commission. The attack was less than 40 minutes old, yet Ogden had taken out the airports, clogged the roads, and tied up every cop, firefighter, and paramedic. Look at this, Gutierrez said. Look at what's happening. How many men does Ogden have in Detroit? Maybe 60, Murray said. We're not sure. 60 men, Gutierrez said. Two platoons, and he's paralyzed a major city. What happens to America if the contagion spreads to 600 people? 6,000. We have to bottle this up here. We can't let it get out. Murray looked at the screens and cursed Charlie Ogden. That man knew exactly what he was doing. All that would end when the five C-17s came in from Fort Bragg. Those planes carried two full companies, plus vehicles and heavy weapons. Ogden's party was about to come to an end. General Cooper, we need an airport, Murray said. We have to assume that Ogden will take out anything that comes near DTW. God damn it! The room fell silent as all eyes turned to General Louis Monroe. The normally soft-spoken, God-fearing Monroe had just cursed at the top of his lungs. He held the phone with both hands, squeezing it as if it were the cause of all this misery. The C-17s, he said. Two of them just went down. There were reports of automatic weapons fire in the cargo sections where the troops were. Some explosions, possibly grenades. We've lost most of Zulu and Yankee companies plus the crews. At least 200 men. Silence fell over the situation room. Another gift from Ogden. That guy really knew his stuff. Gutierrez glared at Murray. What else do we have that can get there before 1.15? Do Phillips and the 63 men left from Whiskey Company, Murray said. With the shape Detroit is in now, that's all we've got. We have no idea where the gate is, Gutierrez said. We have no forces on the ground. 
We have little or no communication into the city, and we have no reinforcements that can be deployed in less than six hours. I want Phillips in there now. Let's not leave it up to our strike eagle option, shall we? Murray nodded. General Monroe, you need to saturate that area with air assets. See if we can take out more of Ogden's men and draw fire from the stingers he has left. Monroe nodded and went back to his phone. Dew and Perry had to find that gate and shut it down because Murray most certainly did not want to leave it up to the strike eagles. They carried both the big 2,000-pound bombs and the nuke. Gutierrez, he noticed, hadn't specified which option he'd use. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Homicide detective Brian Clouser is losing his mind. How else to explain the dreams he keeps having? Dreams that mirror, with impossible accuracy, the gruesome serial murders taking place all over San Francisco. And the feelings he gets from those dreams. Not disgust, not horror, but rather excitement. Nocturnal, by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, is a complete season with 45 episodes. Available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Twelve thirty-two p.m. Officer Sanchez. Wake up, sleepyhead. Detroit police officer Carmen Sanchez opened his eyes. It took him a second to get his bearings. He was weak, could barely move. Well, he was weak, sure, but the reason he couldn't move was that his wrists and feet were tied down. He's awake, he heard a muffled voice say. There was a woman to his left, dressed in some crazy black Halloween costume. It hurt to breathe. How messed up was it when it hurt to breathe? Pretty messed up, true, but not as messed up as God talking in your head. Officer Sanchez, the woman said. 
Can you hear me? He nodded. He could hear her from speakers in the walls, and that was weird because she was standing right next to him. Ah, there you are. He'd never bought into the whole God thing. Never. He got married in a church, sure, but that didn't mean shit. Everyone got married in a church unless you were a fucking hippie. Now that God was chattering away, right in his head, well, that made it just a wee bit easier to believe. Officer Sanchez, my name is Dr. Montoya. You are very sick. Not if you understand. He nodded. Would you like to join us? Can't, Sanchez said. Tied down. Ah, you can talk, Montoya said. That's great. Do you think you can answer a couple of questions about how you feel? Sanchez nodded. Your thoughts feel very weak, Mr. Sanchez. I'm not sure you'll be of much use to us. So try to take a deep breath from me, Montoya said. Maybe not, Sanchez said. Maybe not what? Montoya said. You can't take a deep breath? Well then, Mr. Sanchez, the people who are with you are very bad. What should we do about this? Kill me, Sanchez said. Mr. Sanchez, we're not going to kill you. You're going to make it. I understand. We're on our way. He turned his head to look up at the woman. He smiled at her. She's coming, he said. Isn't that nice? Montoya leaned back, away from him. She suddenly looked guarded, afraid. Who's coming? Chelsea. He didn't see her hand move, but he felt gloved fingers on his jaw, forcing his mouth open. No, Montoya said. She sounded like she might cry. No. Margaret, what is it? His tongue, Montoya said. Blue spots. He's got it. Get to the decon chamber and wait for me, the man said. Move. Sanchez heard footsteps, a door open, then a little farther away, a bigger door open. It was all kind of a whirl. He hurt so bad, and his brain wouldn't process things fast enough. I'm sorry you can't join us, Mr. Sanchez, but you really helped out, because we've been looking for the bad people who are doing this to you. I'm glad, he said. Another black suit on his left. Bigger. A black man inside. A black man with a broken front tooth. Pointing a pistol. I'm sorry about this, the man said. Sanchez saw a flash, and then he was gone. 12.35 p.m. On the road again. Margaret waited in the decontamination chamber for clearance. She knew what he was going to do, and she knew that it would only take a couple of seconds. She needed out. She just wanted to go home to her apartment in Cincinnati. She wanted to spend way too much for a Starbucks and sit down and read People or Us Weekly or something truly brain-dead because she wanted to be brain-dead. Maybe she already was. Her brain didn't seem to amount for much anymore. It hadn't saved Amos. It hadn't saved Betty Jewell or Bernadette Smith. And it hadn't saved Officer Carmen Sanchez. Too much death. Too much failure. Clarence entered the decon chamber and closed the airlock door behind him. She activated the spray. Thanks to her earpiece, she could hear Clarence's orders despite the high-pressure spray. Dan, 
Get outside, back at trailer A, Clarence said. Gitch, Marcus, we're out of here. Check north, up by the tractors. Make sure no one is coming down the old train tracks. Got it, Marcus said. Margaret shut off the spray, then opened the other door. Seconds later, dripping with bleach, they both walked out of the trailer and into the shade of the overpass. Dan was standing there in his biohazard suit, holding a pistol, looking scared. Okay, Clarence said. We're going to walk out the way we drove in and head for the water. There we only have to watch for attacks from three sides. I'll take point. Gitch, Marcus, you've got the rear. Dan, you're in the middle with... Gitch's voice, urgent and sharp in her earpiece, cut off Clarence in mid-sentence. Company! Gunfire erupted, amplified by the overpass's brick walls. Margaret's arms flew up around her head, an instinctive reaction, a panicked reaction. A hand grabbed her wrist, yanking her into a run. Sunlight. She came out the far side of the underpass before she even knew that it was Clarence who'd pulled her along. Margaret, come on! Breath locked in her throat. She stumbled, then regained her feet and ran. That put the sound of gunfire behind her. In front of her, below the next underpass, two cars. A compact and a convertible. Just people looking for a place to hide, probably, but apparently Clarence didn't want to find out for sure. This way, he yelled. Then he turned right and started sprint climbing up the steep, tree-spotted, snowy dirt slope. Margaret followed, arms pulling, legs pumping, heart hammering. A hissing sound from behind. Then a shattering roar. She looked back. A ball of fire and smoke billowed out from the underpass, so thick she couldn't even see the Margomobile. A hand on her ass pushing her. Move, Daniel said. They got fucking rockets. She scrambled up the hill, knees grinding into the dirt and rocks until she remembered the hazmat suit. Then she ran on feet and hands only. Sharp bits poked through the PVC into her palms and fingers, but she could tape those later. They reached the black fence on top of the incline. Her gloved fingers clawed at the rubber-coated chain link, and she swung over the top before she even knew what she was doing. More gunshots from behind, things whizzing past her head. Daniel, crying out. Margaret pushed off the fence and hit the ground hard. She stood and looked around. White building, Ford dealership. Behind her, the fence. Behind that, Daniel, rolling limply back down the incline. Clarence's hard grip on her wrist again. Move! They ran away from the dealership and into an eight-lane road choked with bumper-to-bumper traffic. No buildings on the other side of the street. An empty lot to the left and a parking lot to the right. Some people were looking out of their car windows, but most had heard the explosion or seen the rising smoke and were already abandoning their vehicles, sprinting for cover anywhere they could find it. Margaret finally regained her balance and yanked her hand away from Clarence. Just go. I'll keep up. What about Gitchin Marcus? Dead, Clarence said. And Dan took a round in the head. He's gone. They skirted cars and ran into the half-empty parking lot ringed with trees growing up through the asphalt. On the far side, they hopped a smaller fence and found themselves on a cobblestone street, old bricks bumping under the soles of their thick biohazard boots. Two blocks straight ahead, across yet more tree-dotted, wreckage-strewn vacant lots, she saw an abandoned three-story brick building. Faded white letters on faded blue paint at the top of the building spelled out Globe Trading Company. She started toward it, then stopped, when Clarence again grabbed her. No, don't, he said. 
Look at the bottom there, by the corner. She did, and saw two men in army uniforms running out of the building. A second later, two more. They have men stationed in there, Clarence said. That's their fucking headquarters for all we know. We gotta get out of here. Come on. People ran in all directions. It wasn't the screaming sprint of a monster movie, but rather silent running, people moving fast and half-crouch, looking every which way for the next threat. Margaret and Clarence must have appeared to be such a threat because one glance at them sent people running the opposite way. Margaret and Clarence ran left, down the old brick road, putting the abandoned lot and the Globe building beyond it on their right. She heard gunfire behind her again. The men who'd killed Gitch, Marcus and Dr. Dan, they were giving chase. Shit, shit, shit. Was this how her life would end? A bullet in the back? The road changed from bumpy brick to bumpy pavement. On their right, a red brick building, one story, loading dock doors open. Clarence aimed for it. Margaret was already exhausted. Where are we going? Away from the bullets. Clarence stopped at the loading dock, lifted her by her waist, and set her on the ledge, then hopped up behind her. Just run, Margot. We have to find a place to hide, or we're dead. 12.38 p.m. Corporal Cope's big day out. The convoy roared down I-75. Three Humvees, followed by two M939 five-ton troop trucks, followed by two more Humvees. With that much heavy vehicle ripping along at 90 miles an hour, cars just got the hell out of the left lane and let the convoy roar by. Farmland spread out on either side, snow covering the broken remnants of last year's crops. Beyond the fields, rows of trees at least a quarter mile from the highway. Beautiful scenery. Corporal Cope rode in the third Hummer, feeling his connection with God. Soon, they would see the glorious gateway and, God willing, would be there when the angels came through. God, it seemed, was not willing. The lead Humvee suddenly morphed from a hardy piece of military gear into an orange blossom of fire, spewing bits of metal and body parts all over the highway. The explosion engulfed a slow-moving VW Beetle in the right lane and sent part of a rear axle through the windshield of the Ford Explorer directly behind it. The second Humvee swerved to the right, around both the suddenly tumbling Explorer and the newly burning Beetle. The Hummer driver showed amazing reaction time, but at 90 miles an hour, the heavy vehicle quickly lost traction. Its rear end fishtailed, making it almost perpendicular with the road when the wheels dug in and it flipped violently, barrel rolling into the ditch. Cope saw a freeze-frame image of a man thrown free, already missing an arm and part of a leg. Cope's driver swerved into the left shoulder, past the still-moving, burning wreck of the lead Hummer. If this had been a rack, with insurgent-launched rockets raining down from the rooftops, hitting the gas would have been the right thing to do. But this wasn't a rack, and here, hitting the gas just made Cope's Hummer the lead vehicle, the primary target. Stop this thing, Cope shouted at his driver. We're setting docks! The Hummer's brakes hit hard, throwing Cope forward. Go, 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 Cope screamed. Get to cover! He jumped out the passenger door and started sprinting. He looked up at the sky to see what was killing his people. Apache longbow attack helicopters. Compact, dark shapes, like flying tanks with that signature radar dome sticking up above the blurring rotor blades. 
he was in some deep shit. As he ran off the pavement and onto the right shoulder, he looked back to his Hummer. Private Bates hadn't jumped out. Instead, Bates had turned the M249 turret, trying to return fire. The man didn't even have time to pull the trigger before a Hellfire missile slammed home. The Hummer erupted in a semi-trailer-sized fireball. The blast threw Cope into the ditch on the other side of the road. He hit hard, but adrenaline drove him on. He scrambled to his feet and up the five-foot-high slope on the ditch's far side. In front of him, a snow-covered cornfield, a regular white spotted with knee-high, rotting yellow stalks. At least a hundred yards to the trees. Cope snapped another quick look around him. A few soldiers were sprinting across the fields, headed for the woods. On the road behind him, tall black columns of smoke rose into the air. Five Hummers, two trucks, all destroyed. Looked more like the road to Baghdad than a Michigan highway. All this open space. If the Apache's pilots couldn't see him in the afternoon sun, they'd just lock on with infrared targeting. A soldier's body heat stood out clearly against frozen ground. A trap. This was a kill point. The Apaches had been waiting, probably just out of sight behind a hill. He had no chance. He ran anyway. Thirty yards to his right, another soldier running. A wavering line of glowing red reached out toward the man, like some science fiction death ray. Tracer rounds from an Apache's 30-millimeter chain gun. The rounds erupted when they hit the ground, harsh explosions launching man-sized clods of frozen dirt and smoke. The initial shots went wide, but in a fraction of a second, the red death ray closed the gap. The soldier exploded in a literal cloud of blood. Corporal Jeff Cope kept sprinting. He'd made it almost 15 yards when he heard a roar on his left. He turned and saw the tracer around death ray plowing a path toward him. He didn't even have time to look away. 12.39 p.m. We be jamming. She could feel them dying. Her soldiers, her protectors. The enemy was too powerful. Too many devils out to stop her. Chelsea Jewell began to realize that maybe, just maybe, she should have listened to Chauncey. She should have listened to General Ogden. But that didn't matter. She still had Mommy. Together, they could build a new network, a bigger network, one that would eventually spread all over the planet. The gate to heaven? Fuck the gate to heaven. Fuck the angels. Bad words, she knew, but not really, because God decides what is bad and good. God can't do anything bad. Chelsea didn't need the angels. If she escaped, she could use the Legos to make her own angels. If she escaped. And that was a big if, because the boogeyman was coming. If he found her, nothing mattered. She had to block him. Block him. Or maybe control him. She could do that. She knew she could. She could make him do things. And who could be a better protector than the boogeyman? Still, she didn't want it to come to that. She didn't want to face him. Killing him had sounded like fun when he was a long ways away. Now that he was so close, none of this was fun anymore. 12.40 p.m. Landing field. 
Du held the sat phone to his right ear. He covered his left ear with his left hand and leaned his head forward, his belly pressing into the camouflage helmet sitting on his lap. Yeah, he said. Look, Murray, we can secure whatever area you want when we land, but first you have to find us a spot to put down. Perry couldn't get comfortable. They'd found him a flak jacket and a helmet. He was used to not having anything in his size, so he found it odd when both fit. The helmet, in particular, would take some getting accustomed to. It had a microphone mounted on the side, connected to a little push-to-talk switch clipped to his vest. Small speakers mounted inside let him hear the tinny voices of soldiers preparing for the coming fight. Some were joking, some were serious, but up and down the facing rows of seats, they all looked very pissed off. They'd lost friends during X-Ray Company's sneak attack. Most of the conversation revolved around finding Ogden and what they would do to him when they did. The men had also offered Perry an M4, but Dew said Perry would stick with the 45, and that was that. Dew looked up, eyebrows raised, sweat beating on his bald head despite the cool temperature inside the Osprey. He turned and regarded Perry. You saw the Renaissance Center in your vision, right? Perry nodded. Where was the river? Perry tried to think. So much shit had gone down so fast. That image had flashed from multiple minds, like a strobe light dance from different cameras all hitting at once. But in each of the images, the angle had been pretty consistent. On the left, Perry said. How far away would you say it was? Perry shrugged. I'm not great with distances, do. Take a guess, college boy. Maybe a mile, maybe a bit less. Do relayed the information, waited, then laughed. You gotta be shitting me, LT. He listened, then nodded. Apparently, Murray wasn't shitting him. Do tucked the sat phone back in his flak jacket. We're going to put down and secure the LZ. Then Murray's going to fly in another Margo-mobile behind us. They've lost contact with Margaret and Otto, so he thinks their trailers were destroyed. Is Margo dead? I doubt it, Dew said. They had plenty of warning. Otto was a sharp guy, so let's hope for the best. Well, where are we landing then? Dew smiled a shit-eating grin. Perry, my boy, you're going to love this landing field. The irony is so thick you could spread it on toast. What? Where are we landing? Duke kept smiling and shook his head. You'll just have to wait and see. He thought this was funny. Funny. They were heading into a firefight. Detroit was burning. Margaret might be dead. And Dew was laughing. Just sit back and enjoy the ride, Dew said. This might be the last time you ever fly one of these things. Perry sat back and hoped that was true. But he hoped it would be because they walked away and just never got on one again. Not because they crashed and died. 12.42 p.m. Ogden's plans. General Charlie Ogden made another mark on his paper map of Detroit. He'd lost contact with the men at the 94-75 intersection. They'd done their job, But the fact that he'd lost contact meant two more men gone. Fifty minutes into the attack, and losses were higher than he'd expected. Those low-flying A-10s were a real pain in the ass. Small arms fire just wouldn't take them out. He'd had only ten stingers to begin with. Five of the various airports and five in the city. Three of the latter set had already fired. 
two misses and a hit, bringing down an Apache right on Woodward Avenue. He'd ordered the last two stingers held in reserve. It was possible, however improbable, that Ogden had missed something. Giving up air superiority wasn't an issue. What he couldn't handle was troops on the ground. His men were too spread out, too dispersed to repel infantry. Ogden could sense it now. He could sense how close they were. 32 minutes, give or take, and the hatchlings would activate the gate. The angels would descend upon Detroit. He was in the Globe Building with Corporal Kenny Johnson, a sorry excuse for a communications man. Just the two of them, the hatchlings busting ass to finish the gate, and Chelsea still sitting inside the Winnebago. Mr. Burkle continued to run in and out, finding whatever material he could for the hatchlings. Sir, Johnson said, we're getting reports of massive air traffic off Belle Isle, less than a mile up the river. A-10s, Apaches, even F-15s flying low. Flying low. Are they attacking anything? It looks like just targets of opportunity, sir, Johnson said. Some of our men tried volley fire with AT-4s, even brought down an A-10. But as soon as our men fire, one of the gunships takes them out. He's coming, Chelsea's voice, tinged with fear. That instantly made Ogden sweat, made his stomach churn. How could God be afraid? The boogeyman, he's coming. Stop him. His men had failed to kill Perry and Dew. What if they had also failed to do enough damage to Whiskey Company? Johnson, call out to everyone who's left. Look for Ospreys. Repeat, Ospreys. Johnson bent to the task, and Ogden waited. Perry and Dew were on the way. The only question was, who was coming with them? Sir, visual confirmation of three Ospreys. I repeat, three Ospreys, coming in fast from the north. Concentrate all remaining stinger fire on the Ospreys, Ogden said. Tell any unit that can see the Ospreys to move toward them. Set up sniper positions. If any of the birds land, concentrate all fire on whatever comes out. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Talmur is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My gran says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready, for a great evil is coming. And death follows with it. Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a story glass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. 
The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.